Now, today's Father's Day, and we have a habit of always preaching on fatherhood on Father's Day. And so I'm going to do it today, and I'm going to generally take, take the sermon from part of a chapter I've written for some book that somebody's told me sometime, somewhere, in some way, may see the light of day. And you can pray for me the next three days because my wife is gone, and the last thing she said to me is, right, this is getting serious. I wonder when it started getting serious. <laughs> I think eight years ago, Lawrence, Lawrence isn't here. Yeah, 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 Lawrence. <laughs> okay, all right. I want to jump off, and this will not be a usual sermon. Usually we go through consecutively a book of the Bible, but this is a thematic sermon. But there's strong, strong support for sermons on subjects And uh, actually, I would say that probably a huge proportion of the sermons have been more subject sermons than verse-by-verse sermons across church history. We normally have verse-by-verse, but this Sunday, it's a subject sermon. And the subject, the title is, That He May Command His Children. And the reason I've titled it that is that... uh, One of the things that's often said in our day that hates authority is that nowhere in the Bible does it ever tell a husband to lead his wife or to be in authority or anything like that. It just tells wives to submit to their husband. It doesn't tell the husband to rule or command or or lead. And so I want to read where the Bible tells the husband not just to lead but to command, okay? And it's Genesis 18, 19, and you've never seen it anywhere because you've always been so intent on the story that comes before it and the story that comes after it, which is the whole account of Sodom and Gomorrah. So this, this section, I'm pulling out one verse from a whole section that's the account of God coming down and judging Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the middle of it, it says this, For I, this is God, have chosen him, this is Abraham, so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Now, I hope you get a kick out of that verse because that verse is like a jungle gym of complications and, 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 and constructions grammatically. At the very beginning, it says, I have chosen him. Well, we're, most of us are reformed, and so we're like, yeah, he's chosen him, right? Okay, he's chosen him, right? Yeah, God chose Abraham. And then it says, so that. So this is the purpose clause. Why did God choose Abraham? He chose him so that he, Abraham, may command his children and his household after him. So God chose Abraham so that Abraham may command his family, his household, his children, his wife, his servants, so that he chose him so that he may command his household after him, and that would include his wife. He's to command his wife, all right? Okay? To what? Abraham's to command them to keep the way of the Lord. How do they keep the way of the Lord? By doing what? Righteousness and justice. And then the purpose clause. 
so that, and this is a perpetual motion machine. God chose so that God's choice would be fulfilled. And what we want as Reformed Christians is to remove all the middle crud, okay? We want to say, well, God chose him, and and so I can just go to sleep and twiddle my thumbs. No, 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 no. God chose you so that you will command. And who are you to command? You're to command your household. And what are you to command them? You're to command them to do righteousness, all right, and justice. And why are you to do that? So that the Lord may bring upon Abraham, bring upon you, bring upon your children what he has spoken about you. Okay. That's the first text. And now here's the second text. This is Psalm 133. Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. What I'm doing right now is I'm looking at all of you and I'm thinking about where is there unity in the homes of this church? The households? And where is there not unity? Is there unity in this church this morning? Is there unity in your marriage? With your children? not, is there? There isn't unity between you and your daughters. Is there unity in our elders board? Okay, now, you realize that this is not angel food cake that I just read. You don't just go and swallow. Angel food cake has no reason to exist. It's just like a kiss and a promise. (laughs) This is not a kiss and a promise. This is not vapid. It's not vacuous. It's not... Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. It is like the precious oil upon the head coming down upon the beard, even Aaron's beard coming down upon the edge of his robes. It's like the dew of Hermon coming down upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, life forever. You think about your marriage, you think about your family, sibling relationships, you think about your children, you think about the elders and the deacons board, you think about the women's ministries, you think about every part of your relationships and you say, is there unity? And the answer is in many, many of them, there isn't. You know, sitting out on our deck yesterday or the day before and and Ben, who is the world's most perfect father, all right? He asked me to say that today so that that his, his wife would think he was a good father. So, yeah. She just left, oh no. Tell me when she comes back in, I'll have to repeat it, okay. 
Now, that's a joke. He didn't ask me to say that. He would give anything for me not to say that. All right. But yesterday, there were other children at our house, and I didn't notice, but being a good father, Ben noticed that the son of a household was teasing the daughter, the younger daughter. And so he called that son up on our deck, and he gave him instruction and rebuked him for the way he was treating his little sister. Behold how good and how pleasant. What did Ben do? Ben gave himself to the work of how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. And since the fall, there has never been an occasion when anybody dwells together in unity without the exercise of authority. There is no unity without authority. None. Okay? Give it up. We are not naturally at peace and unity. And what you need in a home is a big dog. And that big dog better know how to growl and bite if there's going to be unity in the home. Because the home is not filled with nice girls and nice boys and nice wives. The home is filled with sinners, including Amos. I know it's hard to believe, Amos, but even you. (laughs) Don't worry. You won't have to put up with me much longer. And so we read Psalm 133, and we just sort of ditz brain right through it. Behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers, and then the crumb boys all sing it, and you just like, you know, tears come out of your eyes, and you just want to cuddle with everybody and stroke their cheek. And what it needs is a big dog who knows how to bite and how to growl. And if you don't have a big dog, there will be no unity among brothers. God has ordered the universe in such a way that that authority is not a defect, it's an asset. Do you understand me? And so what I want you to see is God has explicitly commanded the Christian father to command his household, and you saw that in that text, And then God commends unity, and that unity is only fulfilled when you have a father who commands his household. Do you understand this? All right? And you see this with the children of Israel. When they go into the wilderness, Moses has his father-in-law visit, and his father-in-law Jethro comes and watches, and he sees that Moses is spending all his time listening to the complaints and the conflict of the children of Israel. And his father-in-law watches this, and then Jethro says to Moses, Moses, what you're doing is not good. He said, you're going to completely wear yourself out. How? By spending your life adjudicating the conflict between the people of Israel. Right? So what you need to do is you need to take certain trustworthy men from the children of Israel and put them over thousands. And then 
they'll adjudicate all the conflict of that thousand people, that man, and then the difficult cases will be brought to you, right? You remember how it says that in the book of Exodus. Everybody remember that, right? Everybody? But of course, that's not what it says, right? That's not what it says. What he actually said to Moses is, I want one of you to be over every hundred, right? Huh? No, 10. He actually puts one man over every 10 to hear their complaints against each other. <laughs> now, is that accurate? It's about 10, isn't it? Right? And so this is an indication, and that's the origin of the office of elder. That's where the office of elder comes from. Moses puts one man over ten, all right, ten over a hundred, hundred over a thousand, or I'm probably getting, yeah, I think that's right, yeah, I'm not good at math. And then, (laughs) I'm really horrible at math, and then there will be, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity, because then when a husband and wife are in conflict, there will be an elder who will come between them and mediate their conflict. Are you with me? And there is no peace in a home, there's no peace in a marriage, there's no peace in a church, and there's no peace in the children of Israel until men give themselves to the responsibility of exercising authority. Now, that should be liberating to every mother here. You have a purpose in your home, and you are the delegated authority of your husband to maintain peace while he's at work. And if you don't do it, you are dishonoring your husband. If you don't, if you allow your children to be dissing you, to disrespect you, if you allow your children to hit you, if you allow your children to delay their obedience of you, you have dishonored the father of the home. Isn't that freeing? And you say, well, there is no father in my home. And I say, then you've dishonored God. I was hoping to be able to present your husband to you to make it less intimidating, but fine. You don't have a husband? Then it's the Father Almighty that you're dishonoring. Do you understand me? His authority is in you, and it's your job to protect that authority. It's your job to honor that authority by requiring your children, by commanding your household, you woman, so that God may fulfill his promises, his choice of you. You see this? In other words, every single act of authority and leadership in the home is either a confession of faith in God the Father Almighty, or it's a denial of faith in God the Father Almighty. And shouldn't that give you freedom to stop, for heaven's sake, stop your emotional manipulation of your children? It's so undignified. Can't you just imagine saying the things to God that your children say to you? You know, we had one mother reported to us this week as saying to her son that... um, Well, never mind, I won't tell the story, but uh, just think what your children say to you when you give them a command. And can you imagine you saying that to God? So why do you let them say it to you? I tell you what my mother used to say to me when I'd say why. And she would summon up every bit of dignity she had as a DeWalt. You know, like the power of tools, same spelling. And she'd 
She'd give it to me. She'd say, because I said so, that's why. And I got just the littlest picture of God. And that's my mother. <laughs> so yes, you can do it. Okay? Just picture God's authority. I have chosen Abraham so that what? So that he commands. Who? His household. Why? So that I will fulfill my choice, right? And then, behold how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Have you ever been in a home where there's unity? You've been in homes where there's unity, haven't you? You've seen it. And you think, boy, is that beautiful, right? You can just feel it. You can see that the husband loves the wife and the wife loves the husband. You can see that the children play together nicely. You've seen this, right? Do you know how much work there is behind that? Do you know how many spankings it took? Do you know how many times that husband and wife had to go in the bedroom while he told her to stop undercutting his authority? Behold, <laughs> how good and how pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Another way of saying it is how nasty it is when brothers don't dwell together in unity. <laughs> so two memories of mine in my lifetime. One when somehow we convinced my dad to go with us to the boundary waters. My dad was not a camping man at all. But I think he thought this was the last hurrah and if he didn't do it now he'd never do it. So... He went along, David, Nathan, and I, and my dad, four of us, two canoes. And of course, you know, if you're a normal human being, what you do in the Boundary Waters is argue about where the portage actually is. Because hours of work depend upon getting it right, especially if there's a wind. And so David and I would just fight over where the portage was, you know, and... We'd stay together and fight. We wouldn't, well, I'll take that, you take, and then tell us who's right, you know. We're just in the middle of, the, it's over, no, it's over. There. And, the, and the stupid thing was, we only had one map and one compass. And so, of course, the fight became who had the map and compass. And, of course, I'm the older brother, and I don't know what that meant then. Normally, it means that you know, I'm the big dog, you know. And I remember my father in one of those fights just completely exasperated and just looking at the two of us and saying, what would Jesus think if he saw and heard you right now, if you saw him here now? And, and for my dad to say that, it was bad. My dad wasn't running around bringing Jesus into everything. <laughs> but he was just completely despised pressed by our behavior. And then I think of the time that I told a certain family of young men in our church they were going to 
they were going to have vacation, Christmas vacation or Thanksgiving together, and as some of them left to go meet the rest of the family, I said to them, don't fight this time. Because they always fight, these brothers. And <laughs> Boy, did they fight that time. I asked them when they came back, so did you fight? Ugh. It was awful. Behold, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. It's like, uh, I use gray flannel if I use it. It's like gray flannel running down your hair and smelling up the whole house. It's like a Yankee Candle Company. It's like, I don't know, what would it be like today? We don't pour oil on ourselves today. Now, let me remind you, God says, for I, God, have chosen him, Abraham, so that he, Abraham, may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may, isn't that weird, the Lord may, what does the Lord may need to do something? You know, we don't speak in terms of the Lord, well, you know, let's do this so that the Lord may. Right? You don't think that way. But it says, so that the Lord may bring upon Abraham what he has spoken about him. Isn't that weird? It is weird. All right. And then behold how good and how pleasant it is for brothers to dwell together in unity. Now, I want to make a couple of notes about um, this command, this authority. All right. And the first thing I want to say about it is the authority of fathers is not unilateral authority. Okay? It's not unilateral. In other words, it is accountable. To whom is it accountable? It's accountable to God. And so you'll find when Scripture commands, for instance, slaves in Ephesians 6 to submit to their masters, and it goes on at great length about slaves submitting to their masters. At the end, it says this, and masters do the same things to them, and what? Give up threatening, knowing that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no partiality with him. <laughs> the authority of the Father is not unilateral. It is accountable to God, just like the authority of masters with their slaves. You may not abuse your slave. You may not abuse your wife. You may not abuse your children because you have a father in heaven. You have a master in heaven. And he's not partial He's not partial. He will judge between you and your wife that you abuse. He will judge between you and your children. Okay? It's not unilateral authority. Furthermore, both the wife and the children have authority. So you don't have the only authority in the home. How does the wife have authority? Well, it says in Corinthians that the wife has authority over her husband's body. 
And so I, we regularly tell wives in this church that they need to guard the body and the sexual purity of their husband. How do they do that? Well, for one thing, they tell their husband if he's on campus, he may not have a meal with a woman, right? They, he belongs to her. If he goes out on business trips, he may not travel with a woman. This is basic stuff, right? That's the authority of the wife. She has been given that authority by Scripture. So the husband's authority is not unilateral. Furthermore, when Cain said about his brother Abel, am I my brother's keeper? The answer is yes. And so brothers have authority over brothers. Why? Because they have responsibility, and you can't have responsibility without authority. It's impossible to have responsibility without authority. So Cain is Abel's keeper, and therefore Cain had authority over Abel. And what did he do? He used his authority to kill his brother. Okay? And so the authority of a father is not unilateral. It is carefully, carefully set within boundaries by God, and he is the one that we will give an account to for our authority. He gives authority to our wives, there is authority of children, there's authority of a wife over the children. It's a delegated authority from the husband, from God. So it is not a unilateral authority, right? Furthermore, um, there are many people who uh, argue that the authority in the home is a mutual authority of both the husband and wife. You've all heard it a hundred times. You've heard people say, it says, submit to one another in Jesus Christ. See, the wife has authority, the husband has authority. But the interesting thing is, it then goes and lays out how we're to submit to one another, and it's wives submitting to husbands. Can you believe it? And then it's children submitting. Submitting to the parents. Can you believe it? And then it's slaves submitting to the masters. Now, why am I hitting my head? I want you to deride and to mock and to scoff at and to completely inoculate yourself against anyone that acts as if there's no unique authority of a father and a husband. Anybody who says it's submit to one another and so the wife's to submit to the husband and the husband's to submit to the wife and it's same deal, both favorites. I want you to laugh and hoot and holler and cat call and don't give them the finger, but almost. Listen, this stuff is demonic because it's a direct attack on the fatherhood of God. And so you just have to do everything you can to, to scowl and growl and bark and, and make fun of it. And, and whatever you do, don't take it seriously. Because if you seriously deal with it, you've failed. It's not a serious proposal. It has nothing to do with authority and everything to do with the desire of the people who are telling you that to be divisive, to be schismatic, and to make money off telling you that. Okay? And you say, 
wait, are you saying that people that say that we should submit ourselves to one another are trying to make money off that? And I say, no, I think you misunderstood me. No, actually, I did say that, and I didn't mean that. Okay, now here's why I say that. Listen to this. 1 Timothy 6, 2-5. Those who have believers as their masters, those who have believers as their masters, must not be disrespectful to them because they are brethren, but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. And so, in other words, back in the early church, it must have been the habit for them to say, well, if the authority over me is a Christian, then we both know there's no authority. And we both know that nobody can command me if they're Christians, because in Christ there's neither slave nor free, Jew nor Greek, male nor female. And so, we're able to live in a plane higher than authority and submission, right? You've all heard this, right? And so what it says here is those who have believers as their masters don't have to respect them because they're brothers. And what's authority and submission among brothers? Can't we live better than that? I once had a man I worked with who had been in the military and there was a job he needed to do. I was actually over him. And he didn't want to do it. I kept saying, you have to do it. And, and, and finally he said to me, you know, in the military, there's, there's submission and authority, but I thought in the church that... No, 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 no. No, 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 no. No, there's no such place as a place of rebellion without authority. That's Christian. It says here, those who have believers as their masters must not be disrespectful to them because they're brethren but must serve them all the more because those who partake of the benefit are believers and beloved. In other words, when we love our brothers in Christ, when we love our fellow Christians, it causes us to be more respectful and more submissive, not to be rebellious, all right? And then he says this. So you know the context is authority, right? And then the Apostle Paul says to Timothy, a pastor, he says, teach and preach. Teach and preach, teach and preach, teach and preach these principles. Teach and preach these principles, okay? And then he says, if, teach and preach these if anyone advocates a different doctrine, now what would the different doctrine be? Well, the different doctrine would be, submit to one another in Jesus Christ. In Christ there's neither male nor female. We're all equal. There is no authority unless... Something gets so horribly wrong in your marriage that there needs to be a tie-breaking authority. And then, I guess, if you've failed so much that you can't agree without authority, then I suppose the husband should be the tie-breaking authority. And he says here, teach and preach these principles. If anyone advocates tie-breaking authority... If anybody advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, what sound words? The words are to submit to authority. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, so he equates commands to submit to authority with the words of Jesus Christ. You with me? All right. And with the doctrine conforming, in other words, submission to authority 
is what? Sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ that conforms to godliness. Are you with me? That's what he was just telling you to do is to submit. And then he says, if teach and preach this stuff, and if anybody disagrees, then they're rejecting what? They're rejecting sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ that conform to godliness. Are you with me? Grammatically. All right, then he is what? He is mistaken. And needs to be corrected. He needs an eminent complementarian to come alongside him, the esteemed colleague, and put his arm around him and, and interlocute. He needs a scholarly journal article exegeting the meaning of the word kephale. Look, in the Western world today, there is a full-out, hell-bound attack upon all authority, except the authority of the state. Okay? It's everywhere. And instead of us having faith and obeying what the scriptures tell us to do, what we're doing is we're making nice with the heretics. We're putting our arms around them and we're telling them how much we esteem them and their degree from Cambridge. And it's utterly disgusting. Why? Because it's not what Scripture shows us. What Scripture shows us is how to deal with this error. And that's what you see here. If anyone advocates a different doctrine, the subject is authority, the command is submission. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words as of our Lord Jesus Christ, with the doctrine conforming to godliness... He is mistaken and needs a colleague to write a scholarly journal article. He needs to learn the meaning of the word complementarian. Now, some of you don't know what I'm talking about, but some of you do, okay? No. He needs to be dealt with in a delicate matter, manner that makes a distinction between the argument and the person. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? He needs to be dealt with in an objective way where we have enough uh, bigness and enough uh, objectivity that we don't insult him personally. He needs, most of all, not to have any ad hominem arguments made against him. He doesn't need his character to be discussed. He needs his error to be gently exposed. Come on, guys. Look at what it does. It says, if anyone advocates a different doctrine, he is conceited. He understands nothing. He has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of depraved mind and deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. Come on, guys. This is the truth. This is how Paul, the apostle, inspired by the Holy Spirit, dealt with rebellion. 
making nice with rebels in the church? Come on. Behold. <laughs> Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell together in unity. Now, why did I just quote that? You will never have unity in your home until you deal properly with rebellion. You will never have it. And that's the reason there is no unity in the evangelical church today. It's because all the wolves are being given free access to the sheep. What in the world is the point of having a pastor and an elder if they don't growl and if they don't bite? You know? How pathetic to have a preacher who can't bark. Can I bark? Sorry. Listen, everybody will say that it's an ego trip for me, that I enjoy being big, being loud, that I love to throw around my weight. I know that's what they say, and that's why for 20 years in the ministry, this is how I preached. Are you ready? This is how I preached. These verses are fascinating. Let me point out a couple things. First, note the Apostle Paul is in the middle of commanding slaves to respect and honor and submit to their masters, particularly if their masters are believers. So respect for authority isn't thrown out the window when it's Christians who are the authority and the subordinate. In Christ, there is neither slave nor free, and in Christ, the slave is to respect and submit to his master. And what people would say to me in those years, and you remember when I preached like that, I'd read everything from my manuscript, and what people said is they love my preaching because I never altered my tone from conversation to the pulpit. That when I preached in the pulpit, it was the same voice they heard in conversation. Everybody told me this. That's what they loved about me. And then I began to study my context, my culture. I began to think about postmodernism. I began to think about why when I was 18, I grew my hair long and pierced my ear. And I began to realize that androgyny is utterly revolting. And then I began to see a resemblance to the way I, pre of the way I preached to having long hair and a pierced ear that I didn't want to present myself as larger than life. I wanted to, to wear the right eyeglasses and, and the right clothes and have the right affect that would be acceptable by postmodern wusses. And, and I realized that women find it sort of sexy. You know, the big-shouldered guy who's like Femi. You know, every man on the front of the, the romance novels. Femi with big shoulders. And so what did I do? I thought, I don't want to do it because then 
all my sins will be visible. If I read from a manuscript, I can hide my sins. But when I preach without a manuscript, all my sins are visible. Okay? And I thought, you know, I better, I better move past the manuscript. And I better take some risk. And then I realized that the tone of voice and the volume should match the truth. That that's manly, that's leadership, that's authority. But then I realized if I did that, then people would know that I was arrogant. And I am. But I thought, yeah, but if I don't do that, then the words don't match the truth and the authority. And so I've got to begin to yell some things and to plead other things and to get very quiet and to do fast and slow. In other words, I have to sort of use the voice God's given me in a way that's somehow analogous to the way they do it in opera. I mean, why should the, I won't use the word, <laughs> okay, why should those men be the ones who are allowed to have emphasis and the preacher should have none? The Apostle Paul, when he writes what he just writes here, it's the equivalent, rhetorically, of screaming, of shaking his fist. Can you imagine that he ends, flip it up to, to verse 5, please, constant, between men, you imagine, these are people in the church that are misleading through rebellion. And he says they're men of depraved mind who are deprived of the truth and who want to make money off of it. And today I cannot get pastors and elders to ever mention the character of the heretics. Everybody's making nice with the wolves. Because it's about them and it's not about the sheep. It's about them having a reputation that goes down well with people degrees from Oxbridge. And it's utterly revolting. There's never in the history of the church been a time when the people of God have been in safe pasture, green pastures, still waters, have lived together in peace when they've had a pastor whose primary concern is what his reputation will be. Can you imagine what peace there would be in a home where all the husband wants is for his wife to think he's a nice guy? I mean, when Ben was disciplining that child yesterday, I was sitting there and I was in seventh heaven. I was in pig heaven. <laughs> that I have such a son-in-law that he takes responsibility for other men's children and does it with equanimity does it with the dignity of the fatherhood of God and is unapologetic and by doing that protects that little girl from her older brother. And I knew that he cared more about showing the character of God to those children than he cared about the mother's approval because I knew she knew what he was doing. Come on, guys. 
In the past 24 hours, you would not believe the things I have read being said to me on the internet, uh, about me on the internet. Come on. And I mean, regularly, what I write is called pornography. And that's the word that was used yesterday. Pornography. Did you go to the Bailey blog and get your dose of pornography? And these are, are elders in Reformed churches who say that about it. Okay? And then they said that I'm a cult leader. And I want to say to them, would you please show me anything I preach that is contrary to the Reformed theological history or to Scripture? Please show me where I err. Come on, you guys, man up. Be leaders of your home. If you will not discipline your children because you want the approval of your wife, you're utterly disgusting. You will never have her approval. You are, after all, a man, and she's a woman. And it is in the nature of women that they can never approve of men. That's why marriage is wonderful. Honestly. Can you imagine how boring it would be for me to be married to a man? Or for you to be married to a woman? It would be a black hole of emotional self-disclosure. Two women together? Oh, man. <laughs> That's depressing. <laughs> Two men together? That's disgusting. <laughs> but a man and a woman. There was a New Yorker cartoon years ago, and it it was a woman looking at a man and saying, honey, you're a man, and I can never fully approve of any man. <laughs> and so you're not going to have your wife's approval in your leadership often. You will have looks. You will have silences. There will be daggers emotionally. But what you have to do is realize that you're going to give an account to God for the way that you rule and lead and command your household your marriage, your children, your mother-in-law, your father-in-law, you're going to give an account to God. And so what are you going to do? God has told you that it is his will for you to command your household. And so what are you going to do? You're either going to live your life trying to get approval from people in a postmodern, femi, wussy age. Do you understand me? Or you're going to live by faith. And whose approval do you want anymore? Do you want your wife's approval and your mother-in-law's approval? Or do you want God's approval? Whose approval do you want? You know, by faith. Now, at this point, some of you are going to say, well, my husband's a jerk. Or some of you are going to say, well, that man married to that woman is a jerk, and the reason that she doesn't submit to him is that he is not a servant leader like Jesus was. You know what I'm saying? Right? We all know this, you know. If he was the kind of husband he should be, then his wife would submit to him, right? So what kind of a husband was Adam when Eve sinned? Right? 
had God failed Adam as his father, and that's why Adam rebelled against God? Come on, women are sinners. Don't listen to your preacher who says they're not. (laughs) Women sin. And so women are responsible for rebellion. And yes, God has called them to submit to a sinner because men are sinners too. And so in their authority and leadership, men will sin. But listen, you have a board of appeals. That's the board of elders. And so when your husband goes off the reservation, you have an obligation to go to the elders and tell them. And you say, so, well, he didn't get up on time this morning. No, 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 no. No, you don't appeal to the higher authority over your husband because he doesn't get up on time in the morning, right? In other words, it has to be a proportionality. And so it would be for things like um, drugs, adultery, pornography, anger regularly in disciplining the children, In other words, no authority is perfect. Every authority will add to the sin as they correct the sin. You you see that because they're sinners. But you have an appeal, and the appeal is to the elders of the church. And so often women don't get this. They think that it's going to destroy their marriage for them to come to the elders and ask the elders for help in dealing with their husband's sin. And the fact is that it's an act of faith to go to the elders because then you say, well, we promise to submit, and I suppose at some point, hypothetically, they should be useful, right? Now, one final thing. So don't be a perfectionist about authority. One final thing. Guard your authority. And I'm saying this to both uh, husbands and wives. Remember how I said earlier that we live in a day that hates authority, all authority except the authority of the government. And so if you look at what's going on with authority today, all of it is sliding to government. And increasingly, what we used to call mediating institutions, which are the home and the church, are being dismissed And all authority is going to... So people increasingly look to Washington as as their God, and they expect Washington to give them medical care, to give them food, to give them a certain price per hundredweight for their milk, to give them money if they don't plant their crops, (laughs) okay? To give them safe working environments, to give them even down to to protect them from ever having somebody call them to repent as a homosexual because that's a hate crime and they might commit suicide. You understand, people are looking to the government to have absolute authority over their lives so that they never suffer, they never have any needs, and they never even have to hear a call to repent because that's a hate crime. Are you with me? And you have been given by God the authority over your children. And you may not allow your children to be transferred from their natural sovereigns to government. Do you understand me? Now you say, well, how do I pull that one off? (laughs) And I say, it's a difficult thing today. 
But on every level, what we need to do is work to protect sphere sovereignty, which means the mediating institutions that God has ordained, which are three. He's ordained the state, he's ordained the church, and he's ordained the home. Okay? And so both the home and the church need to be growling and biting when the state is trying to usurp the unique authority of the church and the home that God has delegated. Okay? Now, how do we do that? Well, it's difficult. And it's difficult because it is proper for us if that man is beating his wife and she goes to her elders and asks them to rebuke and admonish and discipline him. Are you with me? That's appropriate. Everybody with me? And then the elders have no response. They then are to go to the civil magistrate and to put him under the authority of the man carrying the gun. Do you understand that? And so we as a church will appeal to the civil magistrate to assume original jurisdiction over a marriage and a family. Are you with me? And yet at the same time, I'm saying protect your authority, the church, the home, from the civil magistrate. You say, well, how am I supposed to do both? I say, figure it out. Figure it out. Because the civil magistrate is appointed by God and his authority is not to be trifled with. And he is to be used by Christians and by churches and by wives. And yet, we must not allow the civil magistrate to assume original jurisdiction over the church and the home. And that's what's going on. And I don't have any idea what's going to happen in the next 20 years, except that the slide of all authority to Washington and to Indianapolis and the state capitol is going to continue. Christians are going to live more and more in fear of the state taking their children. Look at plan B. Little 14-year-old girl can go in and now over the counter get a drug and kill her baby. And you say, well, it doesn't kill babies. They say, it does too kill babies. Those babies are conceived and it prevents their implantation in a statistically significant number of times. And you say, well, statistically significant, but not always and not even often. And I say, okay, fine. You want your little 14-year-old girl to go and start up the chainsaw and take down a tree? After all, in most cases, she'll be able to do it without dying. And of course, all of a sudden, you get real intense about making sure your little 14-year-old girl didn't use a chainsaw. You see, the government is absolutely taking over the authority of the parents. They don't want your 14-year-old having pregnancy. And they will do anything they can to make sure that she can have access to drugs that will uh, abort the pregnancy. And many times, it's not a pregnancy that's being aborted, it's a child. And so, if you think about how heinous it is that the government is usurping your authority over your daughter of a minor age so that she can kill your grandson, you understand me, that's how intense the battle is today for authority. Okay? Everybody see this. And so, we need to be, as citizens 
good stewards of the authority that God has delegated to you as mothers and fathers as natural sovereigns over your own children. And that's the final thing I want to say on Father's Day. Mothers and dads, grandparents and grand, grandfathers and grandmothers, elders and pastors and Titus II women, protect the sphere of sovereignty that you have in the home and in the church, okay? Does that make sense? And I know you're probably all, you know, going to think at this point, well, how in the world are we supposed to do that? And my answer is I have no idea how you're going to do that. But Brian has a plan. That's a joke. No, actually, Eric has a plan. (laughs) Eric's the man with a plan. (laughs) All right. No, Jeff. Jeff has a plan. Why do you guys all sit within an arm stretch of each other? The main plans are in that part of the congregation. You guys are thick as thieves. 